Okay, our first reading this morning is from Acts chapter 17, verses 16 to 34. In the Pew uh, Chair Bibles, it's page 770. If you have a large print, it's page 1722. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of this very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations and they should inhabit the whole earth. And he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of the Lord. The second reading will be taken from 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 9, 19-23. should be on page 795 on the small one and page... Uh, 780 on the larger one. Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. 
and to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share it, uh, that I may share in its blessing. This is the will of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. It's good to see you this morning. I'm glad that your ark started. I hope it starts again when you go home. I'll pray and then we'll turn to Acts chapter 17. Dear God and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you that we get the opportunity sometimes to talk to people about our faith. And as we look at how Paul talked to people in Athens, we pray that we might learn something from him so that it'll help us when we chat with people. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard recently on the radio that one shopping mall a week closes in America. One a week. The person being interviewed raised the question, what was this statistic telling us? And he asked the question, if this is true, who are we as human beings? What are we here for? Now, isn't that an interesting question to come out of the fact that a shop is shutting? Why are we here as human beings? Interesting, isn't it? The visit of Jordan Peterson and his appearance on question and answer also raised the same question. Why are we here? Jimmy Barnes, the Australian raver, I mean singer, um, was interviewed by the Sydney Morning Herald recently. And he was asked, what is the meaning of life? And he answered, to make the best of it you can. It's not about success or possessions, it's about being content. Paul comes to Athens. Athens was the philosophical and intellectual capital of the world at the time of Paul. It wasn't the power base, for that was Rome. But people gathered there regularly to talk about what is the meaning of life? And why am I here? If you look with me, I've got to get my clicker. Sorry. If you look with me here, you'll see that where Paul was, there were lots of temples. This is the temple of Hepakitis, the Acropolis, the Pantheon, and lastly, 
the temple of the most famous of all all the Greek gods and supposedly at that time the most powerful, the temple of Zeus. And Paul notes this, for he says, if you look with me in verse 16 of chapter 17, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. And of course, there are all the idols and the temples that were built, as we'll look at in a moment. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both the Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happen to be there. Now, one of the things that we have to sort of do as we go through this passage of Scripture is to do what we often uh, do when we talk to somebody. We'll talk to them and we'll think, why did they say that? And then you have to tease it out. And that's actually what takes place in this text. We have to sort of go through and say, well, why does people... Why does Paul respond in this way? Why does he say what he says? And so that's what we will do as we go through and see how he talks to people about God and the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, he goes to the synagogue, as was his habit, as was Jesus' habit, that he would go to the Jews, and if the Jews wouldn't take any notice, he would then go to the Gentiles, and that's what Paul did. And so he goes and he speaks. He reasoned in the synagogue, verse 17 says this, with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. Now, we need to understand this wasn't a matter of him sort of standing on the corner near Linfield Station on a, 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 a box and speaking and people just walking past and paying, not paying attention. Now, he went to the place where people actually did pay attention to those who spoke. And we can see there, there were a group of Epicureans and Stoic philosophers who began to debate with him. The Epicureans were people who worked on the principle of there is no God who will bring judgment upon us. Now that is important as we will get down the track a little bit later. But bear in mind that that there is no God that will bring any judgment upon us. And so therefore, eat, drink and be merry, for tomorrow you'll be dead. There were, and they were the sort of make life as best of it as you can. Then, of course, there were the Stoics. And the Stoics were people who are probably the sort of a British stiff stiff upper lip sort of approach to to life. Um, You just go on. If, If life is tough, just grin and bear it. If it's good, don't let pleasure sort of get the better of you and just look look for it all the time. And so this is actually the basis of of where Paul comes from. And so they actually talk to him and they say that he's a bit of a babbler. Now that word was used both in a pejorative way and in a good way. In the good way it was, it was a little bit like a bird. If you watch a bird... What do they do? They go around and pick up seeds. And that's what they, they thought Paul was, that he was a sort of a philosopher 
that would pick up little bits of all sorts of different philosophies because he talks to them about God and the Lord Jesus Christ, you see, and they don't know about this God and the Lord Jesus Christ, as we'll see in a moment. And so they think, oh, he's cobbled together a little bit of various philosophies here. But it was also uh, used in a negative sense that, oh, here's, here's somebody who's come along and what he wants to do is to make money by putting together a new philosophy and people will pay to listen to him. But no, they at least are willing to listen to him because they, some of them said he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then, of course, they want to hear more. And so they take him to the Areopagus. Some of you may have climbed up this. Um, I climbed up it um, a long, long, long time ago. It was in the days before they had steps. And the only way you got down was to sit on your backside and slide down. So you you wore a pair of old pants if you uh, were doing it because it nearly ruined them. So Paul was um, invited to go and to speak there. And they want to know about his strange ideas. And Paul starts, and this is what we need to do when we talk to people about the Lord Jesus, we need to talk to them about the things of where they're at. We often start where they're not and we uh, need to find out where they're at. Paul starts, these people are asking the question, what is life all about? How can we know the gods? And so we might sort of start there. And he starts with, he says to them, Paul, verse 22, he stood up at the meeting and he said, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, all people are spiritual. They might not describe themselves as religious, but all people are spiritual. And by that I mean everybody gives, finds a way to give meaning to their life. What gives meaning to their life? For Jimmy Barnes, it's being content. What is it for people? It might be making money. Most people will say it's my family. And so Paul zeroes in there. And you can say to people, well, what's important for you in life? Why do you think you're here? It's the deepest of questions, isn't it? And you can go from there with people. And so, he says, I see that you've got objects of worship. And he says, I found an altar with an inscription to an unknown God. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about this, uh, this inscription. Because we might well think, well, they've got all their gods, such as the temples and all that that I've shown you, and, they, and they, we might think, well, they've put up this altar to the unknown god because they're going to have two bob or 20 cents each way. 
and we don't know about this one, so we'll cover all bases and so we'll put this one up. But no, what happened was in the 6th century BC there was a plague in Athens and everybody worshipped and everybody came and sacrificed to their god to try and get rid of this plague and it didn't work. So in the end, they invited a poet from Crete to come to Athens and he said, well, look, what's happened is you've obviously missed out on a god that is all-powerful and who can take away this plague. So what we need to do is find out how we can make a sacrifice to this god. So what I propose is this. We will put a flock of sheep on Mars Hill one night and in the morning the ones who do not go and eat the grass, who just wake up and lie there, they are the ones that the God has designated, this unknown God has designated as the ones that need to be sacrificed to, to this unknown God. And so they put the sheep there and the sheep wake up in the morning and some go and eat and some don't and they sacrifice the ones that don't eat and the plague stops. And so they built this altar to an unknown God and they built numbers of them throughout Greece. You can find them in other parts of Greece as well. So Paul starts there. And I can't go through, because of time, every aspect of the character of this unknown God that Paul is actually going to speak to them about. But he does start with putting it before them, let me tell you about the gods that you worship and I'll tell you about this unknown God and the real differences. And so that's what he he does. He says this in verse 24, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. What Paul is pointing out to these people here is that you guys have actually created gods and you've built temples to them. And these gods supposedly control some aspects of nature. You know, a different god for different parts. But I'm trying to tell you about the God who is above all of them. He is the God who made the world. You see, all the gods that you've got, Zeus, Aphrodite, whatever, you made up. But here is something above us, a God who made everything. And then... He really slaps them around the ears by telling them that this God doesn't live in a temple. He's above it all. And he's not served by human hands. 
the Greek gods were served by human hands. They would bring food for the Greek god. And they would have different gods for different things. For example, Zeus was the god of victory. Nike, I'm sorry, was the god of victory. The goddess of victory. She was worshipped by the athletes and the warriors. Aphrodite was the god of sex, beauty and fertility. So if you wanted to have children, you made an offering to Aphrodite. Athena was the goddess of wisdom and politics. So if you wanted to become prime minister or president, then you made an offering to Athena. All these gods were to have power in a particular way. But Paul says that the god that he worships is not served by human hands and he doesn't need anything from us. What a contrast. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything. See, he says this to them. This is what you think God is like and the God you've made. And I'm telling you about another God who is above it all. And also the gods, would. some of the gods would only have power in a particular place. For example, we'd have a god, if you lived in New South Wales, you had a god for New South Wales and you had a god for Queensland and you had a god for Victoria. And you may even bring it down even further. There'd be a god for Linfield and a god for Roseville. But what does Paul say? From verse 26, from one man he made all the nations that could inhabit the earth. And he has appointed, and he has marked out their appointed time in history and the boundaries of their land. This God isn't just the God of New South Wales and Queensland or Roseville and Linfield. This God is God over as far as you can possibly see and as far as you can possibly go. And then he makes another contrast. You have put up a sign that says, to the unknown God. And people today might say to us, well, if God would speak to me, I'd believe in him. Well, of course, he speaks through the word of God, doesn't he? But look what they say. God this did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. In other words, this unknown God can be found. You Athenians, you Epicureans, you Stoics, you can know this God. And of course, that is what we're on about, isn't it? This is what we want our family and friends who don't know Jesus to know. We want them to know this God. And so, that's where he goes from it. And he points out, verse 29, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, 
me. We should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone. Well, what a contrast to what, is, what we have seen in regards to the temples. And then comes the crunch. Here now comes his criticism of them. He'd been culturally relevant. He'd been imaginative, creative in trying to have to draw the things together that we would do with people. And then comes the crunch where he criticises them. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. He calls upon them to come and place their trust in this God, who he says is not unknown, but is knowable, and you get to know him. How do you get to know him? By saying, well, I've lived my life my way, and I'm sorry I've not paid any attention to you before, so I'm sorry for that. Please forgive me. And this Jesus that has risen from the dead, I will trust in for my salvation, for my way to heaven when I die. Now, you might put that in your own words, in your own way. But what I say to people is we've all done things wrong, and they nod. We've all lied. We've all stolen. We've all done things wrong, and God is not pleased. And so we need to get back into a relationship with him and we do that by saying, God, I've done wrong. I believe Jesus died on the cross for me. Please forgive me and help me to live with Jesus as my boss. I use captain coach because I often talk to sports people. I understand that. Being culturally relevant, you pick up on, you know, Help him to live as my help me to live with Jesus as my chief executive or whatever it is that is relevant to them. And then he makes a great claim. They would might have said to him, Well, how can this be? And then he says this The proof of what I'm saying is found in this. For he has set a day when he will judge the world. So contrary to what the Epicureans had been saying, there is a judgment to come. The world with justice by the man he has pointed. And why is this all true? Why should, should you believe me? He has given proof to this in everyone by raising him from the dead. You see, Jesus proves that there is a God. Jesus proves that this God is all-powerful. Who else can raise the dead? Jesus' resurrection proves that there is life after this life. Jesus' resurrection proves that God has a right to control our lives. That's what Paul says to them. And how do they respond? Well, they respond as we know people respond today. Some, the Bible tells us, 
came to a saving faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And others said, we will hear more of this. Typical Australians they were. You know, why put off till the day after tomorrow the the things you can put off till next week? No, we'll put it off. She'll be right, mate. Put it off. And that's what happens, isn't it? And we might have to say, how do you know you won't go under a bus tomorrow? It's that urgent. And so, some come to a faith, some don't, and some are willing to listen later. And that's the way it is with people today. But I'm sure you get the opportunities to sometimes chat to people about why you're a Christian or why you went to church on Sunday. And so, when that happens, maybe some of the things that Paul has said here might help you as you try and nut out how to respond. But there are three important principles. Be culturally relevant. Talk to them where they're at. Be creative in your mind about how to put it over to them. And lastly, we may need to be critical of them, but do it compassionately. Help them to understand that their thinking is not right. Paul opened up their minds to the unknown God and there are many out there who do not know our God. And so when you get the chance, try and remember what Paul did. I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and we do pray that you'll help us to understand it and to put it into practice. We pray, Father, that we won't be like what which we saw in the video, where we will just learn something off by heart, but that we'll actually do it, that we will actually clean the room, that we'll actually speak up. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.